This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Excited to welcome Jake Pence to the show today. Originally from central Illinois, Jake went to college at the University of Illinois, where he studied finance with a concentration in real estate. During college, he purchased his first investment property and interned for several private equity firms in a variety of roles, including property management, asset management, and acquisitions. Jake decided to start his own firm, Caskey, immediately after his college graduation about three and a half years ago. Fast forward to today. Jake and Caskey are located in Nashville, Tennessee, and have roughly $20 million in assets under management, including a small business portfolio. So Jake, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sam. So I'm curious, you grew up in Illinois, you're going to college in Champaign there. What led you to pick a concentration in real estate? Did you have family history? What kind yeah. of started you down that rabbit trail? Yeah. So when I was in high school, my uncle, he owns a small portfolio of single family homes. So he's got about 10 single families. And again, when I was in high school, he basically used me as cheap labor on his portfolio. So, you know, we were out there on the roof in the summer on, you know, on those hot days, we were doing remodels and doing a lot of those more handyman type of roles. And candidly, I was not very good at what he was asking me to do. And he knew that, right? But his ultimate goal in mind was to start introducing me to real estate and entrepreneurship and investing and in some of those different things that maybe aren't as common in a place where, you know, like I grew up. And that's ultimately what it did. So then that started me down the path. And then when I you know, was looking for what I wanted to study in college, finance and the concentration in real estate just seemed like a natural fit. So during college, you interned for several different firms. What about those experiences prepared you for where you are today and also pushed you to start something on your own instead of joining up with a firm? Yeah. So they were without a doubt the springboard for my career. I was very fortunate in getting the opportunities that I got. And quite frankly, I just stumbled into them. I didn't do anything in particular that maybe, you know, allowed me to get these great internships. Like I happened to be in the right place at the right time and then took advantage of those opportunities. And what it allowed me to do was it exposed me to a lot of different aspects of the business. So at first, I actually was applying for an investment management internship there in Champaign. And I didn't get an internship position, but that same company had thought about starting a property management position. So what they did was they allowed me to run with that property management position. So, you know, at first I was doing renewals, handing out five days. I mean, I was really in the weeds there for quite some time. And then that role grew into more of an asset management type of position where I was setting rents, looking at budgets. You know, I was responsible for a lot of the KPI evaluation for a company that owned several thousand units. Again, that role then grew into more of an acquisitions type of role. That's uh, where I was helping them then underwrite new opportunities and look at new markets. And really those were all building blocks upon one another. And the second internship, it exposed me to Nashville, which was how I ended up in Nashville. And it gave me a more on-site property management role. And that's been, I would say, very, very helpful up to this point in my career now, because when I'm dealing with our property managers, 
I've been in their shoes. Like I've been the one delivering bad news to tenants and raising rents and doing those different things. So I truly know what I'm asking of them. And and I feel like they can appreciate that. And um, it leads to a better relationship. And ultimately, like I said, those internships springboarded me into wanting to go do my own thing because I felt like I had seen enough parts of the business. And at that point, I had also purchased my first investment property too. So I had some proof of concept. I felt like I had enough enough knowledge and a strong enough skill set at that point to try to go put my own deals together. And ultimately for me, it came down to, I felt like immediately after college was going to be the lowest risk, highest reward time to go out and try my own thing. And you know, I had the opportunity to go join those companies, but when I was thinking about it, at the end of the day, I could never get the position that I ultimately wanted to get because I couldn't be the person in charge, right? Like I couldn't, they had their own founders and their own exec teams. And, you know, I wanted to build something on my own. So just a combination of a lot of those experiences and then feeling comfortable with my downside when it, when it came time to actually start the business. You mentioned beginning your entrepreneurial journey, recognizing that it was kind of an asymmetric risk reward profile for you coming right out of college. But I would imagine that same profile that made you want to start a business also made it a little bit harder to attract investors. Obviously, you're on the younger side. You would have been fresh out of college. How did you overcome that hurdle? Because if you're meeting just somebody random in your community and trying to raise money, their first thought is going to be, how much skin do you have in the game? And just by definition, you're probably not going to have a lot of actual cash. So how yeah. did you address that? How did you overcome those hurdles in trying to raise capital? Yeah, like you mentioned, that was the major challenge that I knew I was going to run into. So while I was going to start the business, I felt confident that I was going to be able to address that because of a cert, a couple of things. So first and foremost, I was able to land my first investor, my uncle, who I had been out and helping those days in the summer and done a lot of work for him. And he was at a spot with his single families to where it, you know, it made some sense for him to maybe refinance and free up a little bit of equity. And we had some, we bought some other deals together too up to that point. So I was able to kind of land him as my first investor. And then what I did was I went through my Facebook friends and I basically made a list. I broke them down into three buckets. So the first bucket was people that I knew well, and that I knew had money, people that I didn't know as well, but I knew had money. And then people that I knew well, but maybe didn't have money yet. And what I did was I then just started making my way through that list. So I started with people that I knew well and had a good relationship with already, whether that was through growing up in a small town where everybody knows everybody, or whether that was through relationships I built in college. Like, however it is, I had that connection to them. I felt comfortable going to them immediately and saying, hey, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm doing. And I felt like I had good enough track record and other aspects of my life to where they would at least give me a shot or hear me out. Right. And that was how it started for me. And I got a lot of no's right in that first group of people, but I was able to get just enough yeses to get me started. And then from there, it's mostly grown through referrals. And you know, now I'm at a point where that second portion of my list where it was people that I knew not as well, but that I knew had money. I'm starting to make my way through some of those relationships now and really starting to build those out. But yeah, I just tried to be very thoughtful and intentional with how I was going to approach these investors and make sure that 
kind of didn't waste that initial outreach and wanted it to be productive. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That's a really practical, systematic approach that I think a lot of our listeners who are wanting to break in could use. There's just, my goodness, all of us or most people have a Facebook profile. You might actually be on the younger side of people who have a Facebook profile, but utilizing those connections, that part of your network and being able to build really your first database of investors out of that. You said you've raised about $5 million. You know, how much of that was maybe from your original tranche of investors and how much of that has been from growth over time as you've done more deals? Yeah. So very few of that was from that original kind of group, right? So this isn't some rich uncle story, you know what I mean? It, But it's one of those deals where we were able to go in and, and do a good job for that first group, build the relationship, really build trust. And then they felt comfortable referring us to others. And then it's just grown from there. And now we've tapped into a couple of different, I guess, demographics, you could say. And that's been an interesting process too, like learning how, for example, farmers in central Illinois, like learning how farmers in central Illinois operate differently than attorneys in Chicago and what their preferences are and what their liquidity is like throughout the life cycle of the year. And it's been able to, it's definitely grown into more than what I'd anticipated. You mentioned learning a lot about capital flows and how that matches up with cycles and the economy. What does that practically mean for you? What's a specific tidbit that you could share with us related to capital flows? Yeah. So An easy example would be I had a group of investors that what they were doing was they were selling their, they worked for a large corporation and they were selling their company stock to then put that money into real estate. Well, during the kind of 2021, their company stock was at all time highs. So they were happy to sell and liquidate and then deploy that back into real estate. Well, then we were going to do a deal in early 2022, March of 2022, which coincided with the time where the stock market started taking a tumble. And all of a sudden, that group, which really made up the large majority of my capital sources at that time, they were no longer interested in selling their stock to put into real. Nothing about their their appetite for the deals had changed. They just simply did not have as much liquidity as they'd once had. And that was a really eye-opening experience for me because really it showed me that I needed to diversify my investor base too. And I, you know, I can't be so tied in with just maybe one group of individuals that, you know, I need to have uh, multiple sources of capital because at the end of the day, I think that's really what separates people in our business, right? It's the ability to always have access to capital. And that's just something that I, I've had to learn the hard way at times. So when you evaluate your own personal skill set, what do you think you do better than the majority of people in real estate or, or what gives you a unique edge as you're out competing in the marketplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, and this might be an unconventional answer, I think that I'm extremely practical. And what I mean by that is like, you know, when I'm evaluating deals, for example, like I'm going to look at it from a very practical lens. Like I'm not going to go try to make a deal work just because I need an acquisition fee to keep the lights on, right? Like I really try to think things through thoroughly and then ultimately decide what the best path forward is. And that just simple fact of like being practical has been very helpful in building relationships with brokers, with property managers, you know, lenders, doing all those things, and then actually 
like building those relationships beyond just like an initial introduction and being thoughtful and how I approach those things. So yeah, maybe that's an unconventional answer, but I think it served me well up until this point by not trying to maybe stretch myself too thin in certain ways or being overly aggressive about certain things. You know, I really just trying to avoid shooting myself in the foot at all times is something that I try to embody. Yeah. Yeah. Being grounded is very, very important. I was browsing on your website and you guys have a quite a number of target markets kind of in a band from Illinois down through Indiana, Kentucky, Nashville, obviously, and then North Carolina. What drives your selection of target markets? Yeah. So it's a combination of things. I mean, first, obviously, you want that market to have sound fundamentals, right? So you want there to be people that aren't leaving, like you don't want, uh, you know, to invest in markets where there's mass exodus going on, like you, you know, you want people to be there, you want there to be a good uh, set of jobs, you want there to obviously be like a supply of apartments so that there's actually opportunities for you to buy things. So just the same type of stuff that probably, you know, everybody looks at when it comes to evaluating market. But then I try, there's other things to me that factor into it too. It's where can I realistically build valuable relationships? And for me, we're able to span the Midwest and Southeast because I'm born and raised in the Midwest, have a bunch of connections already there. It's very easy for me to live in Nashville and still do business back in the Midwest because of those relationships that I had built before I moved here. Because what I found was right when I started Caskey, I moved back in with my parents. Um, I was living in central Illinois and I was trying to build relationships with brokers down here in the Southeast and in Nashville in particular. And that was very, very challenging, right? Because I didn't have some big track record to come in and, and say, hey, I've, you know, I've got 10,000 units, send me deals. You know, that wasn't me. And it's easy, like now it's much easier for me to call a broker in a different market and at least get them to answer. But that was a real challenge at first. So built those Central Illinois connections in Indiana. And then when I moved down to Nashville, I found it was much easier to build relationships when I was in person and able to actually get together with these folks. And just another, I guess, example of how I tried to be practical about it was a lot of the different brokerage groups, you'll have your senior, your senior brokers, and then you'll have your junior brokers. Well, your junior brokers are typically going to be people in their early to mid twenties, a lot of times, not too long out of school, you know, and I found a lot of common ground, I guess, with a lot of the junior brokers and was able to get together with them and really build good relationships with those guys and girls. And then that, you know, has been able to translate to seeing more opportunities. You know, I think it would have been a challenge for me to go straight to the head brokers at some of these shops and really gain any traction. And ultimately, Nashville, to get back to your question about the target markets, Nashville serves as a hub in many ways for a lot of these different markets down here. There's lots of brokers that they live in Nashville, but they work these other places. It's easy for me to build that relationship because they're here. Like I can go, you know, once a month, I host a little happy hour type deal to where I invite them all to it, right? And invite other people to it. And it's how we get together and can easily stay in touch and do those things. I want to pivot a little bit, Jake, and talk about your experience in the property management side of the business and some dig more into operations. I'm Curious, 
what you've learned about operating traditional, we'll start with traditional real estate, multifamily, you own $20 million with a small multifamily. And then I do want to touch on State Music City, your short-term rental property management company. But currently, how do you manage your current portfolio of traditional multifamily? Yeah. So we have third-party management in place on all of those. That was intentional too. So when I, that first internship that I had, it was in property management. So again, like I was out serving five days at C-class properties to tenants that were, you know, four months behind. Like I was really in the weeds on this stuff and got to see what it takes to actually execute a business plan. And that understanding of just how challenging it is to turn a property around and, you know, how to actually get rents up to market rates and, you know, implement some of these different other income sources that people want to implement, like understanding the challenge that presents itself has then carried over for me because now whenever I'm underwriting a deal, the foremost question on my mind is, can I take what is here in Excel and apply it to real life? Like, is it actually executable? And that is a question that I feel like when I look at deals, I think it's easy to lose sight of that because like, let's not get twisted. I'm a finance guy. Like I'm a numbers guy. Like that's really my skill set. but not being so focused on what, you know, my spreadsheet tells me and losing sight of, okay, can we actually go out and do this? So that's been really important. And then how it, I guess, relates to the STR piece and how we got into that kind of jumping ahead, we do self-manage the short-term rentals that we own. Is a Caskey, we mostly buy multifamily, but we'll do some hospitality stuff too. And when I was looking for management options for that first acquisition here in Nashville, I just didn't really find any that I was particularly comfortable with. I knew I had enough property management experience managing long-term rentals myself that I felt like I would just be able to figure it out, right? Like that's kind of been my approach to a lot of things. It's like, I'm just going to figure it out. And that's what we did. And then being able to layer a lot of tech on top of it to where a lot of that business we're able to automate, you know, kind of the analogy I use is it's like, we've created this machine with the STRs and really it's my job to manage that machine and just make sure that things are operating the way they're supposed to be. And it's turned into a pretty good little business for us. And we're now starting to take on third-party clients here in Nashville too, which has been a, a change. And uh, yeah, but the SDR, there's lots of stories that come from the SDR management. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> Especially in Nashville. Something tells me that you're getting some interesting crowds through there. No as doubt. you've evaluated the business opportunity and you're going in a, a third party direction as well, how does that change the culture or the type of services that you're providing, how you set up the business from a, a basic operational standpoint when you're introducing other owners into the picture? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I don't feel like it changes much, honestly, because I am an owner. I am an investor. Like I know how these people are approaching their properties. And, you know, it's all about if we can set expectations up front and, and provide clear ongoing communication, then we should be fine. That's where I think, and ultimately why we wanted to start State Music City was we just didn't particularly care for the options that were around. And we felt like a lot of them maybe lacked in some of those areas of setting appropriate expectations and providing clear communication. And that was something that we felt like we could do well. 
And that's why we decided to start Save Music City and then ultimately to start bringing on third party clients too. I mean, with a business like that, it really does get easier to run as you scale because we're able to provide, you know, we're able to hire more staff, we're able to pay our, in a lot of instances, we're able to pay our cleaners, we're able to pay our quality control people, our maintenance techs, like we're able to pay them all more. So then we we can then attract better talent retain that talent and then run a, a nice little business. Yeah. I noticed you hired a director of operations and then it, it looks like you uh, recently got engaged to that person. How have you backfilled that role or have you backfilled that role and how hands-on do you personally have to be within Stay Music City? Yeah. So yeah, Maddie, my fiance, she is, I guess that's one other thing about entrepreneurship. Like you definitely need the right people in your corner to really make it happen. And Maddie is no longer with State Music City, not because of, you know, anything like issues like that, but more so just where she was wanting to take her career. And, you know, one, I learned a lot about hiring and firing in the last year too. Like we, one of the ways I used that weapon that is my LinkedIn was to find a new director of operations and to hire some different folks for State Music City. And ultimately, it didn't go as well as I had hoped initially. But now I've been able to, uh, so I had to, you know, I had to fire my first employee and do some of those things, which is always a learning experience. But now we've been able to kind of backfill with a new kind of prop, more conventional property manager type of role. And some cleaners and a maintenance tech and and some of those things. And one of the reasons why I didn't want to bring the long-term property management in-house was one of the lessons that I learned at the first real estate private equity company I was working for was, A, it's harder to enter new markets if you self-manage because you really need a certain level of scale to be able to do it well. So you have to acquire a portfolio of some size in most instances, if you want to be able to have a regional on-site staff, some of those things. Then second, when you run a company that large, like the first one I was at, the boss, who I would say is kind of, was my first one of my first real mentors in the business, the founder, he was very much in the people business rather than the real estate business, if that makes sense. Like he spent so much time just dealing with the issues that come from running an organization of that size that it was very eye-opening to me. And that was I didn't want to have to deal with some of the same issues that he was having to deal with that early on in my career. Maybe that's something we'll pivot to down the road, but at least right now, that just wasn't something that we felt like made the most sense. So yeah, there's lots of hiring and firing and keeping employees and all that. It's it's very, very challenging. Something that kind of when I first got into the business, uh, I was probably naive to just how challenging it ultimately is. Yeah, we uh, started in 2022 our own property management companies who were vertically integrated over about 1,500 units. And our CEO, who had a lot of experience in the property management space, says often, real estate is a people business, not a property business, at least on the property management side. It is so much property management is all about people management. And when you get the right scale and you get the right people, that can be fantastic. But getting to that point, you end up either turning gray or losing a lot of hair. It, it definitely doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of intentionality and really a willingness to get in and spend a lot of time on the people side, which necessarily is going to take time away from other activities like 
broadening your capital base or searching for that next deal. Yeah, because in there's no other way to put it other than it's really, really hard to do it well, like to grow a management business like that. And I would consider myself to be a people person, right? But like you mentioned, if I'm spending my time doing that, it's taking away from other uses of my time, such as broadening the capital base or trying to you know grow the portfolio or do some of those things. So just having to get comfortable with the trade-offs and ultimately decide what makes the most sense. Yeah. I think we have a number of listeners who have dabbled in short-term rentals, maybe own one or two themselves. If you were out in the marketplace looking for somebody to manage your Airbnb, BRBO listing, what would be a question or two that you would ask that would help you to kind of separate the, the good ones from the bad ones in the management space? That's a great question. I mean, whenever you're looking for a property management company, I think it's important that you talk to multiple. And what I would do is... And it's hard for me to speak on markets outside of Nashville because that's the only STR market that I truly know. But it, you know, at least in a in a place like this, I think it makes the most sense to talk to multiple, get pro formas from multiple, and then really try to dig into what they're actually projecting for you. Cause that's where we see a lot of the discrepancy is, you know, that revenue number is ultimately the most important part of, of your STR and what you can hit. It's important to dig into how are they coming up with that number? Is it based off of air DNA, which was probably as effective as rentometer is for multifamily rents? Like it's a good baseline, but it's not something that is really all that reliable at times. Are they using these projections based on other properties in their portfolio that they think are comparable? Like how are they actually getting to the numbers? I think is important. And then figuring out what fees they charge. That's the, the biggest sticking point, I think, for a lot of people is some of these, the SCR management companies, they sneak in fees in lots of different places. And it's important to get really clear about what you're paying for as an owner, and then ultimately what you will be responsible for as an owner too. Just like setting those initial expectations on who is doing what and what are you paying for is the best way to get off to a good start. Well, Jake, really appreciate you joining us today. If folks want to learn more about what you're doing, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to get in touch with me would just be to go to our website, which is com. You know, there's some options on there to, to get a hold of us. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Jake. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Real Estate Syndication Show. I'm your host, Sam Rust, signing off. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.